Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined because I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. Our Father, when we stop and we pause, and someday when we come into your presence, like Isaiah, we know that we will be absolutely overwhelmed with your holiness. Thank you that you are the only one intrinsically holy, but thank you in your mercy, you have credited to us the righteousness, the holiness of Christ on the merits of his shed blood. Our Father, we thank you that we can now come boldly to a throne of grace to find help in time of need. We ask you for the help for the week that is in front of us, that you would allow us to walk in the Spirit, to be filled with him, that he would use our lips, our minds, to draw people to Christ, that he might see through us, men and women, the person of Christ, that they would see and hear the wonderful testimonies of your works. Oh God, we pray for opportunity this week that you would bring someone into our paths that is needy, that needs to know your son. Help us to be sensitive to that opportunity, and when it comes, help us to make the gospel clear. We pray for our nation. We know we are a people covered over in sin. We have stuck our fists in your face. We've rebelled against your statutes. What you call evil, we have called good. Oh God, have mercy on us and may judgment begin with the household of faith. And we come to you to worship you through your word and we pray that as your son called it bread to strengthen us, Peter called it milk to nourish us. May we feed on it today. May the spirit of God, our teacher, Help us to see what it says and not to just see what it says, but to apply it to our lives. And so, Holy Spirit, in a sense of desperation, we call upon you because we don't want to lean on our own understanding. We want to acknowledge you that you might make our path straight. Help me, come and fill me and use me today. Give me the unction that only you can give. For those that are listening, even in other parts of the world, May you speak to those that are without Christ, that today would be a turning point, that they would see that Yeshua is the Messiah. And I pray, our Father, too, that for those that know you and love you, together may we be strengthened to grow in the grace and love of Christ. And we ask it now in his holy name. Amen. Take your Bibles with you this morning. Turn to the book of Daniel, chapter 4. If you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse through this great book. And today we want to study one of the greatest conversions in all of the Bible, the conversion of King Nebuchadnezzar. He was one of the cruelest and most hateful monarchs in human history, and yet he was brought to genuine faith in the Lord. But this chapter is more than just the conversion of a king. It's also the record of the person that God used to bring this king to his knees. And we live in a pagan society, a society that is becoming more and more pagan. And Daniel is a man of integrity who teaches us how to walk in the midst of a pagan society. 
Suppose I told you today that the head of ISIS shared his personal testimony on the internet. And he told how he had turned from the Islamic faith to the God of Israel, the one true God. And in describing his testimony, he speaks to the fact that he had lost his mind for seven years. And he lived like a beast. He ate grass. His hair grew long, his fingernails like claws. But one day he came to his senses and he realized that he had worshipped a false god of power and sensuality and money. And that his view of Allah was not the view of the one true God of Israel. And he came to faith. You would say, wow, that would be an incredible testimony. That a Yahweh-hating Islamist would come to recognize the God of Israel and believe on the Lord Jesus. Yes, it would be an incredible testimony. But no less incredible than the one that we read of here today. Now, this is a narrative portion of Scripture, so we really need to deal with it as a unit. So we're going to do the whole chapter, but I'm not going to read the whole chapter. But to give you a flavor, I want to start reading in verse 28. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king 12 months Later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws." But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. This chapter reads really like a gospel tract. It opens with King Nebuchadnezzar's testimony in the first few verses. It reads almost like a Pauline epistle. Notice verse 1, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth. This is a very detailed first-person account of how this man came to salvation. And we find that this man is so thrilled, so changed, that he wants every people, every nation, and every tongue to be able to read of his testimony. Now, most Bible scholars believe that he wrote this with Daniel's help. In either case, it's his own affidavit. Daniel, of course, was the prophet that the Spirit of God used to organize the book. But nonetheless, these are the words of Nebuchadnezzar. And it's one of the few places in all of Scripture. In fact, it's the only place in all of the Bible where God uses a relatively new believer to write a portion of Scripture. Verse 1 He identifies himself as the author of this testimony, Nebuchadnezzar, the king to all the peoples. In verse 2, it says, it seemed good to me, to me, Nebuchadnezzar, to declare these things. Verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, flourishing. 
And so we find this pagan king testifying throughout this chapter how he had found the living God. And so he says here in the opening verse, may your peace abound. Jesus said the mouth speaks that which is in the heart. And this wealthy king, who from a human perspective had everything, but from God's perspective had absolutely nothing, this king was converted. He says, may your peace abound. St. Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O Lord. And so because he found peace with God, the peace of God saturated his life and that which is in the heart comes out on the lips. And by the way, the writing style that we find here is not unusual. It's typical of many Old Testament passages, especially in the Torah and in the Psalms, where the conclusion is found in the introduction. Let me give you an example. In Psalm 73, Asaph, who wrote the psalm, says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And then after that statement, Asaph takes his readers through the drama and heartache and anger that he went through, only to discover the truth affirmed here in the opening verse. And so when you come to this testimony, this is not just more chin music from this king. This is real. He speaks in the opening three verses of his testimony, and then in verses 4 through 37, he describes how he got to that point, how he was converted. So we read here in verse 2, it has seemed good to me, literally the Hebrew reads, it was beautiful before me. What he is sharing is beautiful in his mind, and it is in God's. It seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. Now, most of you know that phrase, signs and wonders. We find it in both the Old and the New Testament to speak of the miracles of God. And the conversion of Nebuchadnezzar is a miracle of God. Really, every conversion is a miracle of God. But then when he comes to verse 3, he moves from the signs and wonders in his own life to a more broad, generalized way. Notice how great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar is admitting how different his kingdom is from God's. His is temporal. God's is eternal. His is for one generation. God's kingdom is from generation to generation. This is the language of a converted man who discovered the greatness and the mercy of God. Now, how on earth did he get to this place? Now, you have to remember, as I told you in the introductory sermon to the book of Daniel, that the opening verses tell us a lot about this king. If you read Daniel chapter 1 and verse 2, when he comes and he conquers Babylon, he takes the vessels that are found in the sacred temple of God and he puts them in the, God of his, in the temple of his false god, Nebu, after whom, of course, he is named. It's his basic way as a free moral agent is saying, my God is greater than the God of Israel. And of course, God still loves this man. You say, God loves Nebuchadnezzar? Yes, he does. You know, God loved Hitler. You say, God really loved Hitler? God really did. For God so loved the world. The world means world. Forget my five-point Calvinist friends where it means something else. You've got to be educated into that position. World means world throughout the Scripture. God loved everyone. Now, God loves people 
in a way that he wants to bring them to salvation. And if you reject God's salvation, then you will not find his eternal love. But God cares about you just like he cared about this king. And so he tried to get his attention, if you remember in the second chapter, by giving him a dream. And in the dream, he is the head of gold. And he describes Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom as a magnificent kingdom, a wealthy kingdom. But then he describes another kingdom and another kingdom and another kingdom and eventually Messiah's kingdom that will last for and ever and ever that will overthrow his kingdom. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar's response to that is, no, my kingdom will endure forever. My kingdom will be glorious. My name will always be remembered. And so if you remember, he created a statue where the head was not simply gold, but the entire statue was gold. And he asked everyone to bow down and to worship. But if you remember, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah refused to worship the image. And they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And God gives him another expression of grace by showing him a fourth one in the fire who protects God's men. And so God is trying to bring this man to himself, but he is resistant. And so today we're going to discover how his conversion actually takes place. If you're using your note-taking outline, first we have the king's dream in verses 4 through 27. Then the king's disaster, beginning in verse 28, and then his deliverance, beginning in verse 34. So let's begin this morning with the king's dream. His conversion experience begins with another dream. And if you follow the chronology of the book very carefully, you discover that this dream takes about, place about 30 years after Nebuchadnezzar becomes king. Remember, we meet Daniel and his three friends when they're just used between around 15 or 18, based on the Hebrew word that is used for use. But when we come to Daniel in the sixth chapter, he's in his 80s. Well, this king had been ruling for about 30 years at this point. His kingdom had grown, just like God said. It had become magnificent. By this time, he had conquered many, many, many nations, and it had become the most powerful kingdom in the world. And so he can rightly testify in verse 4, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. The word ease is a Hebrew word that means free from apprehension, free from any fear. The word flourishing is literally a Hebrew word that means growing green. In other words, he was at ease, he feared no one, not even the living God, and he was green and growing. From a worldly perspective, his kingdom had prospered, it was blessed, it was beyond anything anyone could ever imagine. He was indeed the head of gold. He had everything the world could offer, but he didn't have salvation reminds me of what our Lord said when he stated, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and in the end he forfeits his soul? This king, he laid his head on the pillow at night with a sense of ease, with a sense of pride. His kingdom had become the number one kingdom in the world. He had never lost a single battle, not one as the Babylonian cuneiform affirms, but he had a false sense of security. Now remember, pride wants to live independently of the living God. And many times, not all the time, but most of the time, money, success, and pride go together in Scripture. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy saying, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. 
it's difficult to be prosperous and not to be prideful at the same time. I've met hundreds of Christians who have succeeded in the Christian life who are not wealthy, but I've met few believers who are wealthy and successful who also prosper spiritually. And so here is King Nebuchadnezzar. He was prosperous, but he was proud, but God nonetheless still loved him. So God gives him a dream because God wants to win this man. And there's a few details of the dream that I want to highlight. First, the dread of the dream is found here in verses 5 through 9. We read in verse 5, I saw a dream and it made me fearful. And these fantasies, as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind, kept alarming me. This dream made him fearful. It wouldn't go away. It kept, it's a participle, it means over and over and over again. It kept alarming him. Now, God has a way of getting our attention. And here is a man who was not afraid of very much. He was certainly not afraid of the surrounding nations. As we've seen, he was not afraid of the living God. Did he have general revelation? Every person on the planet does. Every man knows there's one true God. In his heart of hearts, man is monotheistic. He is not polytheistic. It's rebellion. It's denying the fact that God's fingerprints are all over the creation, that the creation is separate from the Creator, and our conscience show both that there is one true God. He had that. But he rebelled against it, just as Romans 1 describes. So here is a man not afraid of much. He's like the guy who thinks he has the whole world wrapped around his finger. People who don't think they need anything, people who don't think they need God unless they just need him in a crisis. And they pay God lip service. There's a lot of people like that. There's a crisis in their home, and all of a sudden they get committed to the Lord. That's a good response. But that's often too late. Or 9-11 comes on our country, and I remember churches being filled, and I remember sharing with my staff, I said, I wish this would last, but I suspect it will only be around for a month or so. And sure enough, after a month, Americans went back to the same old, same old. Jesus described people in his day who gave God only lip service. He said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In vain do they worship me. There's a lot of people like that in our own nation who identify outwardly with Christianity, but it's only lip service. Jesus taught that in the Sermon on the Mount. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? You would think that would be the testimony of a spirit-filled person. In this case, it's actually the testimony of a lost man. And Jesus doesn't deny that unbelievers can sometimes even do these things. And then I will declare to them, not I once knew you, but I never knew you. It's just lip service. Lord, Lord. He said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't do the things that I say? Lip service Christians. Nebuchadnezzar was like that. He gave God full lip service after Daniel interpreted his first dream. He gave God lip service again after he rescued the Hebrew children out of the fiery furnace. But that's all it is. It's not conversion. But this dream got to him. So we read beginning in verse 6, So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. So all the paid professionals of the kingdom come in. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, 
and the diviners. If you were here in the second chapter, we delineated each of those four groups and the differences. Remember the term Chaldean can be used not only geographically of that place we call Chaldea, also called Babylon, or ethnically of the people who live there, Chaldeans or Babylonians, but it is also used in a technical sense of a class of wise men. So he brings in all the wise men, and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. Now that might seem a little odd, especially in light of their track record, that he would bring these guys in again. I mean, each time he needs help, he goes to them first. But that's the way the people of this world often are. They look for the experts, whether it's the expert counselor or the expert psychiatrist with their problems. And the counselor is supposed to be able to help him because of the degrees after his name. Sometimes I say to the person, well, have you ever asked them what their marriage is like? Have you ever asked them what marriage number they are on? Have you ever asked them what their kids turned out like? There are even Christian counselors who have the worst track record. I'm not saying that a person cannot teach out of their failure. They can. But most of the people teaching out of their failure is just spreading it to others. And they don't speak with any authority. They don't speak from the Scripture. They don't dish out advice that comes from the Word of God. And so verse 7 plainly says, they could not make its interpretation known to me. Why? Because the king was going to the wrong person. Put out in the margin next to this, 1 Corinthians 2.14. 1 Corinthians 2.14. There Paul said, but a natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. He's talking about an unbeliever. The way we come naturally into this world, physically alive, but spiritually dead. Jude says, without or devoid of the Spirit. They cannot discern spiritual truth because they don't have the equipment. Listen, if I have a physical problem, I look for a good doctor. If I have a mechanical problem, I look for a good mechanic. But if I have a spiritual problem, I want to go to a spirit-filled, mature Christian who is going to counsel me from the Word of God. Look at verse 8. But finally, Daniel. By the way, I find that interesting that when he recounts the testimony. He prefers to call him Daniel. Why? Because this man is converted. He gave him, if you remember, in his friends, those pagan names. Most of us know them, at least Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by their pagan names and not as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but their pagan names refuted the living God. But because this man is now converted, he prefers when he retells his testimony to use his Jewish name and not his Hebrew name. But finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belshazzar. And he will say that repeatedly because the people of every tribe, tongue, and nation that read of this testimony, they don't know Daniel by his Jewish name. They know him by his pagan name, whose name is Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom there is a spirit of the holy gods, and I related the dream to him. Now, what took Nebuchadnezzar so long? Some commentators suggest that Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten the remarkable ability of this man to interpret dreams. That's just silly. That's not even bright. I don't know how someone could write that, but I found it in three commentaries. 
No, clearly that's not the case. He did not forget his ability. Look at verse 9. O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians. Don't miss the title, chief of the magicians. He had been promoted, and that's very important when you come to the sixth chapter. And it's very important, too, in understanding why the Magi were the way they were. Because of the influence of this man. You'll miss a lot at Christmas if you don't understand the profound influence Daniel had. O Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, Tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen along with its interpretation. Clearly, the king had not forgotten his ability. Numerous other suggestions have been made. I won't bore you with them. But the answer is found just in a careful reading of verse 8. It does not say, at last, Nebuchadnezzar called Daniel. But verse 8 reads, finally, Daniel came in before me. I have no doubt that Daniel intentionally stayed away because I think Daniel knew that the king needed to see one more time the fallacy of his own wise men, the deficiency in their lives, and he wanted to highlight the greatness of his own God. And no doubt, this is a man who loved God. We've seen that already through the book, and we'll see it in the next few chapters all the way through the book. He loved the living God. And when God is in your heart and on your in your life, it will come out on your lips. No doubt he witnessed to this king. He was a prophet of God. And all the prophets of God, the Bible says, preached of Messiah, which puts this context and this conversion a little bit of historical context. Here is a man who probably time and time again, we will see Daniel every single day prayed three times a day. I'm sure on numerous occasions he said, Oh God, I know it would be a miracle but you have put me in this position of leadership under this despot who is a wicked man who cares less for people, who is so unmerciful. Oh Lord, please get a hold of this man's life and convert him. And God is going to do that. And when Daniel comes into the throne room, you can almost feel the sense of relief in the verse. I hope you picked up on the manner in which Nebuchadnezzar described Daniel and the Lord whom he served. It describes his... His description tells me a couple of things about King Nebuchadnezzar. Number one, he's polytheistic. Notice, um, in fact, if you draw back to chapter 2 and verse 47, he makes a statement there. And there he says, surely your God is a God of gods. Then at the end of chapter 3, he makes a statement, there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. What does that tell you? It still tells us he's polytheistic. He doesn't believe in one God, but multiple gods. I was in India a few weeks ago, and we went into this pagan temple, Sham and myself, and we prayed for the priest and the man who was lost, and we talked to him about Jesus. Oh, yeah, I, I, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. He was just another God in the Parthenon of gods. No, when a Hindu is genuinely converted, like anyone else out of polytheism, he renounces all gods and worships the one true living God who's revealed himself in three co-equal, co-eternal persons. And so here's a man who, one, acknowledges there's many gods, and two, by that, he's not affirming 
what his heart knows to be true, that there is only one God. Even the reprobate of Romans 1, who turns from the Creator and worships the creation, Paul affirms he still recognizes in his heart of hearts that there's one true God. So when Daniel comes into his presence on this occasion, as stated here in verse 8, then again in verse 9, and then again in verse 18, each time the king says to Daniel that a spirit of the holy gods is in you. This is just lip service. He's not saved yet. He's still polytheistic. Nonetheless, God is at work in this man's life. Look, he's a pagan. So what is he using? Pagan terminology to basically say your God is evident in your life. In New Testament terminology, we would say, oh, Daniel is filled with the Spirit of God. You know, and that's the way it ought to be with God's people. We shouldn't have to wear a sign around our neck saying, I'm a born-again Christian. They ought to be able to see a difference in our life. They ought to be able to see the Spirit of God working in us. And if God's Spirit is working in us, people will know it. You know, I've discovered over the years that very often people who have criticized me, who have been angry with me, who have mocked me, who have made fun of me, when they are in crisis, they come to me. Because they know that I am in touch with the living God. The Lord should know that of everyone in here who names the name of Christ. Every unbeliever ought to see that you are in touch with the living God and that you have something to speak on His behalf. And let me tell you this morning, God does not fill a dirty life. And your most valuable stewardship is not your time or your money, it is your heart. And God says to watch over your heart with all diligence. And we live in a day of moral filth. And many of God's people have opened the door to moral filth in their hearts and they wonder why God is not pulsating through them. It's very simple. He does not fill a dirty object. So here's King Nebuchadnezzar. He's flourishing, but now he's floundering when he has this dream. He was at rest. He was at ease. Now he's restless. He's fearful. Look at verse 10. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, literally the Hebrew reads, looking I was looking, which emphasizes that Nebuchadnezzar is engrossed with what he is looking at. He's looking very, very carefully. He's assuring Daniel that he took very careful note of what he saw. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking and behold, there was a tree. If you know your Bible, very often in Scripture, God will use a tree to describe a person, both believers and unbelievers. I saw this tree in the midst, in the middle of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. This is a magnificent tree in his dream. Its foliage was beautiful, and its fruit abundant. And it was food, in, in it was food for all the beasts of the field found shade under it. And the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches and all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking in the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. By the way, we live in a culture that is enamored with angels. The last time I was in Barnes and Nobles, there was a huge shelf with books on nothing but angels. 
They're always described as little winged, innocent-looking creatures, and they're credited with all kinds of things, from finding lost jewelry to healing people of incurable diseases uh, to saving people from fatal accidents. And of course, the Bible does affirm that angels are sent out to render service to those who will inherit salvation, to those who know the living God. But unfortunately, the popular theology on angels, for the most part, is quite inaccurate and really incomplete. And when you read of angels in the Bible, while they are sent to render service to those who are saved, their principal role in the Scripture is to mete out the judgment of God. We will see that in Daniel, the 10th chapter, and we will see it all the way through the Revelation. And so beginning here in verse 14, we see God using an angel to minister God's judgment. Notice how the verse begins. He shouted out, literally, he cried in strength, which indicates that what he's about to say is very, very important, and he wants the king to hear it. He shouted out and spoke as follows, chopped down the tree. Cut off its branches, strip off its foliage, and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. And notice what he says, yet leave the stump with its root in the ground. Now the word for stump is a specialized word in the Hebrew text. It's the word ikar. And it describes not a dead stump, but a living stump. A stump that is not dead, and that's important because God in this vision is going to use this stump that is still alive to picture Nebuchadnezzar to show him that he is going to be restored. But then the angel adds here in the middle of verse 15, but with a band of iron and bronze around it and the new grass of the field. Now the band represents, as you know, the vision, the insanity of the king. He, he, he is bound, he is gripped with this terrible madness. It holds him. It, the same word is used in Ezra 7 of chains, of bonds, of imprisonment, depending on your English translation. He's describing the chains, the bond, bonds by which this man was bound mentally. Notice carefully in the middle of verse 15 the change in pronouns. I have them circled. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him Share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. A tree isn't a hymn that signals me that this tree, this stump, in some manner represents a person, namely Nebuchadnezzar. And so the idiom of the tree gets very personal in verse 16. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. Seven periods of time. Those of you who are prophecy students know the significance of this little word, time. And if you've studied prophecy, you know that it refers to a year. Daniel will use it again in Daniel 7.25, where he speaks of a time, times, and half of a time in describing half of the tribulation. How long is the great tribulation? Seven years. How long is half of it? Three and a half years. Both the prophet Daniel and the book of Revelation, and we'll detail that when we come to the seventh chapter, describe this phrase, time, times, and half a time, to describe a very important half of the tribulation and what happens right in the middle of the great tribulation period that's very important. Now, in, um, in English, we have uh, singular and plural. But in Hebrew, like other languages, in Aramaic, and this is the Aramaic portion of Daniel, 
There's singular, there's plural, and there's dual. So in Daniel 7.25, when he speaks of a time, that's a singular. When he speaks of times, that's a dual. That refers to two. And then half a time, that's a half a one or three and a half years. Now, we don't really have a dual in English, and we rarely try to even express that form. If I said to you, uh, last night I had all my friends over for dinner, both of them. Uh, all my friends would be a plural. Both of them would be a dual. Um, years ago, we were reading the picture Bible. Uh, people ask me very often, what's the best children's Bible? I still tell them the David C. Cook publication on the picture Bible. It's the best kids Bible out there. I own about 20 children's Bible, and yes, I've read the latest ones, and they're not as good as this one that was done many, many years ago. And my kids in the picture Bible, they said, well, Dad, there's two angels here at the flaming sword of fire. They're at the entrance to the garden after God told Adam and Eve they could not come back in. But in this Bible, there's one angel, and in this Bible, there's three angels. Which is it? Well, they were very precise. Those who pictured it in the David C. Cook Bible. There's two angels because it's a duel in Hebrew. So when he speaks here of seven times, he is speaking, as we will see, of seven years. Just hold that in your mind. But that's important. Now, in English, again, we don't have a duel. You know, it speaks of cherubim. There's no such thing as cherubims. Uh, it's a duel. They can express it in the form, just like there's no such thing as deers. There's the word deer, right? This is a, a seven periods of time. It's a singular seven years. That becomes very important. Hold on to that fact. Verse 17. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones. So the decree, the decision by these angelic watchers, these holy angels, of course is not made independently of God. Now, contrary to the popular theology pictured on the television, where angels serve at their own will and do their own thing, that's not true of God's holy angels. The decree, the decision, is not made independently of God. In fact, if you drop down uh, to verse 24... That same decree is not called the decree of the angelic watchers, but the decree of the Most High. So this is a sovereign God, and it's these angels that are simply carrying out His, His commands. This decree is given by God, notice, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom He wishes and sets over it the lowliness, the lowliest of men. One of the points of this dream is to let Nebuchadnezzar to know who really is in charge. That it's not Nebuchadnezzar, but it's God. If only the people in Washington could understand that. This, verse 18, this is the dream which I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belshazzar, tell me its interpretation. And as much as none of the wise men, which by the way would have been a dark cloud on their resume forever, but when he tells his testimony, he wants to underscore that. Because if you remember from the early chapters, these men are into the occult. And he no longer wants to affirm that. None of these wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able for a spirit of the holy gods is in you. So having described the dread, the fear of the dream, now he gives the delineation of the dream. Beginning in verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar. Again, those readers would not have known his Jewish name. Then Daniel, whose name is Belshazzar, was appalled for a while. 
as his thoughts alarmed him. So there was a period of time when Daniel says nothing. Not a word is said during this period of time. The King James says one hour. The New American Standard here says for a while. The Arabic root means either one hour or a short period of time. Either is correct. He is so overwhelmed and, and the king doesn't initially interrupt him. He lets him go on in this silence. Why? Because he has tremendous respect for this man. You know, sometimes you read a portion of scripture and you're just overwhelmed. There have been a few times in the pulpit, I, I just couldn't speak. I was just so overwhelmed with the text. And imagine today if I were reading the text of Scripture and I was silent for a whole hour. That would prolong the message. But at the end of this hour, the king breaks the silence. Notice again verse 19. The king responded and said, Belshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar replied, my lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. Daniel is basically saying, I've got some bad news to tell you, king. And Daniel was experiencing what every true preacher and pastor of the word of God experiences. There are times with great joy I can give you a happy message. I love to preach on the joys and the realities of heaven. But sometimes I have to preach about the realities of hell. Sometimes I am called to confront people as I confront myself with sin, reprove, rebuke, exhort, Paul says, with great patience and instruction. And sometimes the message just weighs your heart down. I understand what the prophets said when they said the burden of the word of the Lord. And it's unfortunate that so many pastors today want to water down God's truth because they don't want to turn anyone off. And millions of people will go to church today and never be confronted with sin. Many times because they are sitting before an unbelieving pastor or just a false prophet like a Joel Olstein who says you shouldn't talk about sin. You cannot water down the message there are pastors today who would fill hell with lakes and flowers and misrepresent what God says and they are doing the people they minister to a great injustice because they are giving them a false sense of peace. On the other hand, there are pastors who will speak of the judgment of God but in a hateful way. Dr. Pentecost, one of my favorite Professors at Dallas Seminary often would say, whenever you preach on hell, preach it with a tear in your eye. And I believe that. And that's how Daniel does it. His heart is broken. Oh, king, how I wish this dream did not refer to you. I wish it referred to your enemies. But he knows where Nebuchadnezzar is headed. And so with a great sense of integrity, he tells him in truth. He doesn't, he, he doesn't hide it. He doesn't take pleasure in giving the stern word of God. God himself, the Bible says, takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And yet he tells them the truth. Verse 20, he begins to delineate the meaning of the dream. The tree that you saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the sky dwelt, and in whose branches the birds of the sky lodged. And now comes the punchline in verse 22. It is you, O king. Just like Nathan the prophet 
confronting King David. You are the man, David. Even so, it is you, O king. For you have become great and grown strong and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky and your dominion to the end of the earth. And that the king saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field. And let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him. He restates the dream almost word for word, showing Nebuchadnezzar that he knows the dream and therefore his interpretation is once again totally reliable. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king. And this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King. And notice the six descriptions of judgment that follow as he details it to the King of Babylon. First in verse 25, that you will be driven away from mankind. Nebuchadnezzar would experience broken fellowship from his fellow man. He'd be in the wilderness away from people. Second, we're told, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. That had to be a shock to him. Not only would he not be with his fellow man, he'd be with the beasts of the field. Third, we're told, and you be given grass to eat like the cattle. That's a true vegetarian diet to the hill. Fourth, you'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. You'll wake up morning after morning covered in dew, which means you're going to live out without any shelter. Fifth, And seven periods of time will pass over you. We've already noted that refers to seven years until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Now, God gets a little more personal in the restatement of the dream. Back in verse 17, if you will look there, when he said that this judgment of the king would be in order that the living, may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. And indeed, they would know that. Remember, this affidavit, this spiritual tract is going to be published through the whole world, and everyone would know it. But now he he takes it from the living, here in verse 5, to you. God says that you, meaning you, Nebuchadnezzar, that you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind. Oh, that many politicians could understand that today. Then six, and finally in verse 26, and in that it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. Again, the significance of the stump is that God has not done with him yet. And so that's the interpretation. Again, it takes a lot of integrity to tell him the truth, but he's not afraid to do that. That's what makes him such a great godly man. Verse 27, Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins. In New Testament terminology, he's telling him to repent and believe because that's the only possible way for you to be able to break away from your sins. And then he tells him, if that's true, you'll show the evidences of it, the fruit of it. He was to manifest that he had genuine faith in the Lord. How? By doing righteousness, and then by breaking off, the verb is shared in Hebrew, from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Now, if you know anything about Nebuchadnezzar, he was a fantastic builder. And very often, these great kings, these despots, would show very little consideration for those who worked for them. 
Hundreds, thousands would die laboring for their kings under the extreme heat and the weight of the task. In history records in Babylonian cuneiform, that Nebuchadnezzar was no different. He prided himself on his great accomplishments and he totally ignored the people who worked for him. He was not interested in alleviating the pain of the poor. He used them. And so Daniel then adds, in case, do all this, break away from all this, in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. Maybe he has a text like 2 Kings 20 in mind where Hezekiah was told that God was going to extinguish his life and then he sought the Lord and God extended his life 15 years. Maybe he thought, well, if Nebuchadnezzar would just repent now, God would change his mind to use an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism is a figure of speech found throughout the Hebrew Old Testament where God uses a human attribute to describe the living God. God is omniscient. It's not like, ooh, I think I'll change my mind. I didn't know I was going to change my mind. When the Bible talks about God repenting or changing his mind, he's using a human attribute so that we can understand God's decision-making process. But unfortunately, King Nebuchadnezzar does not heed the advice. Which brings us from the king's dream to the king's disaster. And there are two truths that are underscored concerning the king's disaster. First, I want you to notice when the disaster came. When it came, we read here in verse 28, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, the king. Twelve months later, a whole year goes by. He had his dream. Daniel had explained it. Life went on, apparently, with no thought to what was said. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. God gave this guy an opportunity to get things straight. And here's a picture of the heart of God. God doesn't immediately zap him. God is long-suffering. But God tells us in Psalm 103, he'll not hold his anger forever. 2 Peter 3 says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That chapter of Scripture tells us the only reason Jesus has not come back yet is God is giving people more time in which to repent. And so God is a patient God, and He gives this man 12 months to get right. God is a loving God. He's a merciful God. But don't think that God's delay is a denial of His wrath because it is not. It is coming Notice beyond when the disaster came, how the disaster came. We're told here in verse 30 that it came because of pride. The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? And indeed, it was a glorious city. Again, as Babylonian cuneiform tablets record, it was one of the finest cities of the ancient world. Here's a picture of one of the original gates. It's been reconstructed. That's the original gate. You can see it in the British Museum. There was an outer wall in this city and an inner wall. The outer wall was 387 feet high, 87 feet thick. Four chariots could race around it. They had chariot races around that 17-mile-long wall. Here's another picture. The streets were lined with lions and dragons and bulls with bricks. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar had his name. Talk about an ego problem. He has name stamped on every single brick, a slogan about himself, on every single brick that they've dug up. There was a banquet hall that sat 10,000 people. 
And of course, one of his greatest accomplishments, and here's what it would have looked like based on the cuneiform, what we call the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. This man had accomplished a lot, but he was stuck on himself. Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? This was the number one city of the ancient world, and they thought, as we will see in the next chapter, it was impregnable. So imagine this proud and arrogant king up there on the roof of the palace one day reflecting, look at what I've done. Look at how great I am. Look at how great my kingdom is. Look at all my glory. He did not acknowledge that God is the one who rules over mankind and that it is God who bestows power and authority as he chooses. It was this man's pride that had encapsulated his life. And so the mighty head of gold becomes like a tree stump. Now listen, had he humbled himself, he could have averted the judgment of God. And so the judgment is based on pride, but it comes with tremendous accuracy and preciseness. Look at verse 31. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. This once brilliant, successful, thriving king, and the next moment, he has the mind of a beast. Verse 32 continues, you will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Now, please note, if you have the NASB, the word... Claws and feathers are in italics. You see that? That tells you this is not part of the original Hebrew, or in this case, Aramaic text. That it's inserted there by the translators. And that's okay, because it's really implied. But please notice what the Bible does not say. It does not say he grew eagle's feathers. It says his hair had grown like eagle's feathers. It does not say that he had claws, but it says his fingernails and toenails, in essence, had become like bird's claws. He acted like an animal. All personal hygiene was jettisoned. His beard grew out. His hair grew long. Probably after seven years, it was down past his waist, and he crawled around like an animal. When I was a new Christian at Boston College, I went over to the Harvard Christian Fellowship one day to hear a very famous Presbyterian preacher who's now in heaven, Dr. John Gershner. And he was debating a very liberal theologian there at Harvard. And on that occasion, Dr. Gershner compared men and women to rats. And when he was finished with his message in his defense of Christianity, one of the Harvard students stood up and asked Dr. Gershner to apologize for comparing men and women to rats. To which he said... I do apologize. I profusely apologize. It was unfair of me to compare humans to rats. 
Then he went on to say that at least a rat behaves like a rat because God created him to live like a rat. But God did not create us to live like rats, yet we behave worse than rats. We behave like beasts. And so it's not by accident that God struck this king with insanity because this judgment is a visible representation of a depraved mind. And when we choose sin over God, when a nation chooses sin over God, then God, the Bible says, gives that person or that people over to a reprobate mind. That's Romans 1. First, he gives them over to sexual uncleanness because we gave God no praise, no thanks. We don't want you, God. We don't want you in our schools. We don't want the Ten Commandments on the walls. We don't want kids to be able to pray out loud over lunch. We don't want you. God gave us over to that which is unclean, to sensuality, to adultery, to fornication. And we continued in our rebellion, and that brought us to the second stage where God gave us over to homosexuality and lesbianism. And then the third stage is when God gives a nation over to a reprobate mind where there is no shame at all. And that is America today. Welcome to the new America. And in the end of that chapter, it says, and although they knew the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. Not only are they saying of us in our face, you ought to do these things, and you ought to ascribe to these things, but they demand that we recognize they are right. That's America. That's God abandoning the nation. That's not a new nation. That's not a free nation. That's an entrapped nation. That's not the wrath of God that will be revealed. That's what Romans 1 calls the wrath of God that is being revealed. And by the way, Nebuchadnezzar's pictured here, state, would be known medically as lycanthropy. Lycan is... The Greek word for wolf, anthropos, anthropy man, a wolf man. Or maybe a similar disorder and very close would be boanthropy, which uh, would refer to someone living like an ox. And of course, the critics of Daniel, and we have highlighted many of their criticisms, and I will, by God's grace, blow them all out of the water before we're done because they're just silly and they are unfounded and they are based on poor scholarship. But the critics say, well, this is just a fanciful tale. This is not history. And of course, there's a lot of ink that is spilt on this section of Scripture by believers and Jewish rabbis showing that this is not fanciful. This is actually a medical condition. I could quote Eusebius, who in 256 B.C. describes an identical case. We could go to Josephus in the first century, who does the same thing. Or for that matter, we could go to a documented case in Britain in 1946. You can go online and see the pictures. I won't bore you with all the details. But listen, here's where I come down. If God can make a donkey talk, he can make a man bark if he wants. I don't need the medical evidence. The fact that God said it is all that I need. But nonetheless, there is good medical evidence to show that this is a condition that some have. You don't usually see these people because they're in mental institutions. So here's a man who thought he was more than a mere human. Like Mormons, he thought he was a god. 
And he needs to be brought down to earth. And so God is going to let him live like a beast to see that he's a mere human. Secondly, don't miss the fact, because people in spilling all that ink about the case that they missed the point of the thing, don't miss the fact that, that this judgment came just like God said, exactly like God said, as the word was in the king's mouth, it came down. Every detail of what God predicted, just like God said. And I want to tell you, while this particular judgment was not eternal, it was designed to keep them away from eternal judgment. There is coming a judgment that Jesus said will come just like a thief in the night and will happen just as precisely and every T will be crossed and every I will be dotted. Every single prophecy concerning the first coming of the Messiah was literally actually fulfilled, which is one of the divine proofs for the inspiration of Scripture And I want to say that every single prophecy will literally actually be fulfilled just like the scriptures say. By the way, if the Babylonian Talmud is correct, during these seven years, Daniel took care of this king. Someone asked me, well, why didn't the people rebel when Nebuchadnezzar went into this state? Because they knew the reliability of Daniel's prophecy. It was well known to these people the incredible ability that God spoke through him and the precise accuracy and that this king was coming back to the throne. They dared not rebel. The final section concerns the king's deliverance. This deliverance comes on two levels. First he's converted, then he's restored. First Nebuchadnezzar's conversion, beginning in verse 34. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. This, by the way, is the first time Nebuchadnezzar raises his eyes towards heaven. God reached this man even in his deranged state. And God taught this king during this seven-year period that he had been living as a king, really like an animal. He had always been looking down and around, but he had never looked up. But now he looks up to the living God, and that's that's how we're different from animals. We don't look down and around. We are to look up because we are made in the image of God. And notice how he describes him. He describes him as the most high God. That jumps off the page to me. If you haven't noticed, it's repeated six times in the chapter. What does that name signify? Well, the first time you will find it used in Scripture is in Genesis 14 when Abraham meets uh, Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, who is said to be the possessor of heaven and earth. God reigns over heaven. God reigns over earth. A bit further in the Old Testament, you find it used the second time in Isaiah the 14th chapter that describes the fall of Satan where he wants to become not like the Redeemer, not like the most wise God, but he wants to become like the most high God. And in those five I will statements, he rebels against the living God. And by the way, this is not simply Nebuchadnezzar's sin. This is our sin, both individually and collectively as a nation. Taking God's glory, taking credit for what God has done. And so Nebuchadnezzar, his sanity returns to him and he looks towards heaven. This man who was like a filthy animal 
with hair all over his body, with long fingernails. He lifts his voice up into heaven for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can ward off his hand or say, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar is saying, no one living in heaven or on earth can say, God, what are you doing? God, this is unfair. No, not at all. He is acknowledging that the judgment that came on him was just. This man has totally changed. He's saved. He turns from other gods and he bows down and looks up to the one true living God. So in addition to his conversion, think now of his restoration, Nebuchadnezzar's restoration. When he turns... In his pride to humility to the living God, his reason is restored as is his rulership. Verse 36, at that time, my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. So he closes with the words of verse 37 that are published as an affidavit. In the year he recovers from his sanity, he writes, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor. And those are active participles in the Hebrew language, meaning he said this over and over and over again, unlike in the earlier chapters where he makes a statement and forgets about it. This is a changed man. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. And so the God that he once called Daniel's God is now his God. Now, how are we going to apply this portion of Scripture? Let me suggest three applications as we close. Number one, this chapter reminds me of the truth that no one is beyond the reach of a sovereign God. No one is beyond the reach of a sovereign God. You may know someone, and you're thinking of someone in your heart today that is so hard-hearted, so prideful, so arrogant, that in your mind, they would never, ever, ever come to faith. Listen to your pastor. Don't give up on them. God is bigger than any puny little man. God is not only interested in the poor and lowly. God is interested in the high and mighty. No man is big enough to run from the living God if God so wills. The second lesson that this chapter reverberates for me is that God hates pride. You will not find a more graphic chapter than this on the subject of pride in all of the Word of God. And if I were to ask you what is the fundamental sin of all sins, what is the mother sin? The Bible would say pride. It was the sin of Satan when he said, I want to be like God. It was the sin of Adam and Eve where he was, they were told they could become like God. And it is your sin and my sin every time we sin. Because when we choose sin and we choose our way, we're basically saying, God, we're wiser than you are. Our way is better than your way. We're going to do what we want. Like we know best. Proverbs is filled with warnings against pride. There are six things the Lord hates, seven. And on the top of the list, proud eyes. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before stumbling. Paul asks the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? 
What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, then why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Look, every gift you have, every talent God has given you, every possession you own comes from God. And part of maturing in Christ is recognizing what do you have that you didn't receive? People say, well, don't get a big head pastor, you know, for preaching. If a pastor preaches with power, he doesn't have a big head, friend, because he recognizes that what he has, God gave him. It's an immature statement. What do you have that you didn't receive? Nebuchadnezzar came to know that everything he had came from God. Now, God, I think, could have won him differently. Had he repented like Daniel encouraged him to do, but he didn't. He refused, and God had to deal with him like he did. And sometimes God has to bring us as believers through a dark time, a low time. I mean, you look at some of the great men of God in Scripture in the 40 years, so to speak, they spent on the backside of the desert so that they could become usable. Years ago in the city of London, there was a large gathering of people, and among the invited guests was Caesar Milan. And a young lady that night played and sang wondrously and thrilled the audience. And when it was over, Caesar Milan went up to her and he said, and I quote, I thought as I listened to you tonight how tremendously the cause of Christ would be benefited if your talents were dedicated to his cause. He said, you know, young lady, you are a sinner in the sight of God, but I am glad to tell you that the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, can cleanse you from all sin. I mean, that young lady in her pride was so upset with that pastor, she walked out. He said, ma'am, I, I mean no offense. I just pray that God's spirit will convict you and you will come to know Jesus Christ. She went home that night. She could not sleep. She tossed, she turned. And finally, with tears running down her cheeks, she got up out of the bed and she wrote these words. Just as I am without one plea, but that thou blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Charlotte Elliot that day was one to Jesus Christ. You know, I meet lost people and some of them go through the worst heartache I even meet Christian people who go through some of the worst heartaches where so much of it could be avoided if we would just do what God says. But it is pride that will keep the unbeliever out of the kingdom and it is pride that will keep the believer in the center of God's will. Finally, I'm just reminded that when salvation is real, it always becomes public. I hope you didn't miss that. When this king got saved, he makes an open public confession of his faith. He wrote it down. He had it published so that every people and every tongue could read it. Jesus taught that if a man, if a woman, if a boy or a girl has genuine conversion in their heart, if your salvation this morning is real, Jesus said you'll be unashamed. Everyone therefore who shall confess me before men, I will confess before my Father who's in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, and that's what the lack of confession is, it is a denial the Bible teaches. I will deny before my Father who's in heaven. 
That's why we, without apology, have invitations here every week. Not because you're doing anything for me. I don't feel like I've failed if no one comes. If I've preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, then I've done what God's called me to do. But we have an opportunity for people to come to say, yes, I've received Jesus and I am not ashamed of it. And maybe somebody here this morning needs to do that. Maybe you're here and you need a church home. If you really know Christ, the Bible says you're not, you won't be ashamed of Him. You ought to join publicly. Or maybe you're here and you're not really sure you're saved. Why would you want to waste another day? What if your life is smushed out today before it ends? What if Jesus comes back before this day is over? It will be forever too late for you. Oh, but I've got so many things I need to do. You know, my work and my home and my family and my business. That's what Jesus said. The worries of this life will keep many a person out of the kingdom. Look, if you're here today and you're not saved, if you will take a small step towards God in humility, I promise you, He will take a huge step towards you. Now, our Father, we thank You this morning that by the Spirit of God, You let Your prophet Daniel include the personal testimony of this newly won King. Thank You for the lessons that are timeless that are found on these pages of Scripture. I pray today, Father, for someone who is here and the Spirit of God has been at work in their heart. And they need to come today to Jesus. You said today is the day of salvation. When you hear the message, don't harden your heart. Help them in simple faith to say, Lord Jesus, on the basis of your death and resurrection, save me. Father, we acknowledge that You hate pride. May You burn into our core that we have nothing but that which we have received from Your precious hand. You alone are worthy of honor and glory and praise. You said, My glory I'll not share with another. May our lives be open before You. May we walk in humility, acknowledging that without You we can do nothing, but with You we can do everything. May people around us see the Spirit of the living God at work in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name and for His honor. Amen.